This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Andrew Bombeck, author of Long Days, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling us something about yourself and how you got started with this project. Okay, well, I am... uh a father of three small children, currently aged 10, 7, and 4. And my day job is that I am a physician. Uh, I work as a kidney specialist in New York City. And I got started on this project, which is a, a an exploration of modern parenting, because I myself, as a parent, was having so many issues, so many difficulties, so many struggles raising my kids. And I looked for help. And when I looked for help, I was overwhelmed by all the material I found. And the way I processed it was writing a book about it. Now tell the audience how being a parent is like being a doctor. Well, it's it's an interesting intersection because in some ways they are very similar and in some ways they are very different. Um the similarities are that my main job as a doctor is to form a very close and trusting relationship with my patient and convince them that I have their best interests at heart and educate them on what they can do to basically be healthy. There's a similar challenge for parents to establish that very intimate relationship with their with their children to build up trust and create an environment where kids are open to your education and your teaching so you know you could be a bad doctor and tell your patients like you must take this medicine you must do this or i don't want to see you again but that would never work you have to basically forge a relationship where they put their their faith in you and they, they want to do what you're you're asking them to do, more like a cooperative uh, spirit than an obedient spirit. That's sort of the, the ideal version of parenting, where you basically uh, are, are sort of modeling and teaching your kids, this is a way to be a good human. And you hope that you're doing the appropriate job to sort of have them follow your lead. You talk about Charles, the sanitation worker. Tell the audience the importance of that story. So this is a story that I put in the book, 
And the reason why I put it in the book is because I'm trying to show parents that the most important first step you can take is just knowing your kids. And the more you know about your kids and the more they feel that you're interested in every aspect of their lives, the better chance you have of actually making an impact with your with your efforts to, to, to raise them. And Charles is a patient of mine. It's a pseudonym. But, you know, he, he's doing great in terms of his kidney disease. But there are plenty of things he can modify with his lifestyle. Like he could lose weight. He could exercise more. He could eat better. And so I, I talk in the book about how I see him outside of the hospital while he's doing his job. He's, he's a street sweeper. And, and when I see him, he's so excited at, that I'm seeing him in his real life, that I'm actually seeing the true version of him or a truer version than what exists in the clinic. And I'm excited because I do get a glimpse of what he's like um, and, and what his job is like. And it's something we can talk about the next time we're in clinic. But just this idea that I'm I'm getting a better idea of who he is and that our relationship is stronger because of that should improve my chances at making an impact with him when I give him health counseling. And so to me, it's sort of like a parallel of how as a parent, you know, if you if you go in and tell your kids, like, I want you to clean your room, but you don't spend any other time with them, it's never going to work. But if you know your kid's favorite color, favorite toy, favorite TV show, who their best friend is this week, who your who their best friend was last week, which school subject they 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 dread. Um, you know, basically, if you know everything you can about your kids, when you go in and talk to them and say, you know, your room's a mess, let's let's clean it up because it's hard to function in such a, a an environment. You're going to have a better chance of of actually having your words heard as a suggestion rather than a punishment. Now, your father was a renowned physician and medical educator. What was his secrets? What did you find out from talking with him? Well, I'm not sure these were secrets. I mean, he was from a generation where fathers were involved, but definitely not to the same degree that I think fathers today are involved. Um, You know, he he gave a lot of secrets and he passed along a lot of wisdom. just by the way he led his life, but it wasn't like he would sit down and have, you know, fireside chats with his, with his kids. But I think that was very typical of parents in the seventies, especially, you know, a family where the father works and the mother is staying at home, raising the kids. He delegated a lot of that work to my mom and he trusted her with all that. And I think he was very happy to have her do a lot of the heavy lifting of parenting because he was spending so much time being a legendary doctor. I mean, I learned a ton about, you know, how to um, enjoy your career. I turned, I learned, I learned a ton about doctoring from my father. In fact, my previous book was, was all about doctors and it was heavily influenced by his example. And he's a main character in that book, but I think it's very hard for fathers today, especially to look back, on their fathers and say like, this is the model I want to follow because that model really is incompatible with what modern parenting is. You know, if I told my wife, well, by the way, starting today, I'm going to go to the, to the model that my dad did. I mean, she would look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> She'd say like, you know, there's no way you're allowed to, you know, you're, we, we can't function that way. Our family doesn't work that way. Um, and so I think this is part of what I discuss in the book is sort of a, a, 
a, fortunately a good trend of fathers being much more involved in raising their kids, um, trying to take away some of the, the, the responsibilities and expectations that are placed on moms. We are nowhere close to a situation where the expectations are the same. Moms are still burdened with far more expectations and far more responsibilities than dads are. Um, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Now, in your book, you made an observation about the migrating away from parents. What are some of the consequences that uh, young couples or couples fall into? Yeah, I think this is a, a very important demographic trend, which is that starting around the early 1900s, and it's only continued, um, it's becoming rarer and rarer for people to live in intergenerational households where um, kids are being essentially raised by both parents and grandparents. And actually, parents are, are moving physically further away from the grandparents than ever before. So this the distance that the average family has from the older generation uh, has increased. And so there's just less influence from grandparents and older generations than there has been. And that is not, um, you know, in my opinion, a, a good phenomenon. For one, parents need help. You know, if, if I, I'm fortunate enough that my parents live close by and I have a mother-in-law who doesn't live close by but is willing to basically come whenever we, we, we beg her for help um, and fly in. But it, it is an incredible help, a source of extra hands and minds and, and hearts to help you raise your kids if you have um, grandparents or or other older relatives nearby who can give you help. Um, I, I tend to think now of parenting, if you're really going to do it well in the 21st century and you're really going to do it in a way that preserves the sanity of mom and dad, as it has to be done by, by as many adults as you can enlist. The more good help you can enlist, the better your chances of doing this in a way that doesn't just completely drain you of everything you have. So it, that that's that's a huge loss. The second thing is not just the labor loss, but the advice and the and and the guidance being lost because we've moved away from looking at prior generations as an important resource of advice, and that's that's a problem because. There are obviously tons of resources and advice books and parenting blogs and, you know, child rearing podcasts. They're, they're all out there. There's, a, there's literally, it's like, it's like an infinite number of, of resources. You, you could spend an entire year trying to read every advice book and listen to every guidebook, um, go to every blog, and you wouldn't even scratch about 5% of what's out there. And, and that, that's sort of what I did for this book. But now, those 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 uh, those people giving advice are just one type of advice giver, and many of those people either are doing the parenting right now, and they don't have the distance from parenting that sometimes gives pr perspective. And some of these experts don't even have kids, so I'm not sort of saying that these other experts should never be listened to. But I think this idea of of going to them at the expense of listening to other generations can be very um, problematic, and it can discount the, the actual work of parenting. Now, in Chapter 4, uh, you talk about the 
expenditures that parents need to consider. And especially during the inflationary times that we're in now, I think chapter four is so important. What did you find concerning expenditures? Well, parents now spend, I mean, there's two ways I think of expenditure. One is is spending time and the other is spending money. And both of them are being spent at an exorbitant rate compared to prior generations. So there's a statistic that I, I quote in the book, which is that a mother who works outside the home, so a mother who is working full time, spends the same amount of time and much more money per child than a stay-at-home mom in the 70s did. So just if we start with time, that's that's almost impossible to comprehend, but it's it's basically saying that as soon as the mom gets home from work, her entire life is consumed in parenting. But also the cost of parenting, uh, especially in the early years, has become astronomical. And again, a lot of this comes down to this, this competitiveness of parenting, the stress of parenting, the anxiety of parenting, and what a lot of products, whether the products are in the forms of actual toys or, or streaming services or enrichment classes or advice books, a lot of the products that people are buying that is driving up the cost of parenting are really sort of being promoted as a, as a way to try to alleviate that stress by saying, we'll fix it for you. And that sort of rudeness in this idea that parenting by, by its essence now is problematic because if, if, if you're not struggling, you're probably not working as hard as you should. That's sort of the implied message um, that, that I think new parents are getting. Now, in Chapter 5, you talk about the orange world. Tell us more about that. Well, Chapter 5 is uh, really an exploration of how moms and dads have different expectations of them and how the pop culture has started to really get more grounded and gritty in representing just how different those expectations are. And so I, I you know, I, and th- I, I do a big survey of pop culture in this chapter. And, you know, I, I, I go back to things like Leave it to Beaver um, and the Cosby show where basically the moms are doing everything, but it does not look hard for them. I mean, they basically seem to have no cares in the world. Like I, I think the Cosby show, as an example, like Claire Huxtable, she's she's supposed to be a very successful lawyer making tons of money as a lawyer. And yet she's home all the time. You never see her doing any work. And she there's not even a housekeeper. I mean, she's literally doing everything in the house and yet is also able to be a full-time mom, look stunningly beautiful, wear super fancy dresses and not have a stain on them. It's like the most unrealistic representation of what a working mom is. And so some of the newer um, representations of moms in the last 10 years are really pushing back about that and basically saying there's a lot of unpaid labor and a lot of hard expectations that are put on moms. And we're going to we're going to show that in its nitty gritty details. And that's, you know, seen in movies. It's seen in TV shows. But I think the, the most fascinating area is in some of the books that are coming out. And Orange World is a short story. Um, by Karen Russell, that was one of the earlier ones to sort of basically talk about the monstrous, uh, uh, the monstrous anxiety of being a mother today, 
And it's it's sort of like a weird science fiction story where a mom makes a deal with the devil and basically says, if you ensure my kid's going to be healthy and you ensure my kid's going to turn out okay, I will breastfeed you. I will breastfeed you this devil. And she has to breastfeed a devil every night. And eventually she breaks down and goes to a mom's support group and she she tells everybody what she's doing. And the rest of the moms in the group basically say, we all did the same thing. And it's not just the devil, it's a devil. There's all these devils out there who have made these deals with moms. So it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like an allegory of the deal with the devil you make when you become a parent. It's, it's a fascinating short story. Chapter six, we are here to help. What, what's going on there? So this is a book that, as I said, is not an advice book. My book is, is, is more an exploration of parenting. But in this chapter, what I do is I dive into what some of the advice books are, are getting at. And in this chapter, what I explore, and I hinted at this a little bit earlier, is that there's a whole new breed of parenting books that are written by experts, but not experts in parenting. So when you think about who should be a parenting expert, you generally would say, okay, it should be pediatricians, should be, you know, social workers, child psychologists, um, you know, teachers, you know, people who have, and of course, former parents. But some of these new books are being written by behavioral economists, by statisticians, by psychoanalysts for adults. Um, and they're basically taking their field and pushing it onto parenting. And I equate it sort of with the idea of like, they're, they're sort of like external consultants. And they, they say, you know, we're looking at parenting as a, an industry that's in distress, uh, a, 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 an industry that's basically failing. And we're going to use what we've learned in our industry to improve what parents can do. So, you know, there's an example I talked about in this chapter. There's a book called The Game Theory Guide to Raising Kids. And it's written by um, a behavioral economist uh, who himself did not have kids. And he was writing a column that basically was about using game theory, um, which is basically, you know, a theory where you talk about people's motives and try to figure out the best strategies based on people's motives. And he was he was answering a bunch of questions and he started answering parenting questions. And someone said, could you write a whole book about parenting? And so, like, he gives examples where, like, you can use the game theory and 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 behavioral economics to, to mediate sibling fights. I mean, these things sort of sound good in theory, but I mean, you would love to know that this actually worked with the author's own kids or other, you know, that there's, that these things have been tested. So, you know, he, he says, well, if your kids are fighting about, you know, who gets to play the video game first, do an auction and, you know, whoever bids highest for the video game, um, and they don't have to bid money. They could bid, you know, hours doing chores gets to gets to play the video game. Again, these are sort of nice ideas, um, but they they they're, they don't seem like they're tested in the way that you know you would hope a parenting book would would be would be penned by someone who has some skin in the game. So I I think sometimes these ideas and these books can be very helpful, but I think it's it signals again, this distress call of we need it, we'll take any help we can get. And of course, these books wouldn't be written and they wouldn't be bestsellers if there weren't anxious parents who were eager to consume them. So it does sort of highlight just 
how desperate parents are for any source of help they can they can find. Now, you talk about children and academic learning um, in the job market. What's the role of the parent to get the child prepared for this? Well, that's a complicated question because I think that is what drives a lot of, of the anxiety and stress of parenting today is that our kids are on track to inherit a world that is going to be a lot less certain than the world that we're in now, which is already quite uncertain and far less certain than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And this is purely from an economic standpoint, you know, each, you know, it used to be each generation made more money than the previous generation. The current generation of young adults and adults is the first generation to make less money than their parents. And that trend is expected to continue. So there is this sort of shrinking, this expectation, there's a shrinking economic pie. And I think that has sort of pushed a lot of parents to say, well, I need to make sure my child has the best possibility to get a good piece of that pie. And that typically sort of is positioned as I need to get them into the best college and the best training program. And if I do that, I've given them every chance to succeed as an adult. And that's where you see this, you know, the phenomenon that's been termed concerted cultivation of children, where kids are just being overwhelmed with, you know, as many extracurricular activities and and defining skills as, as can be crammed in to, to, to a single person. So, and that's why, you know, and again, I, I am a parent and I, I am not trying to cast aspersions because I do this with my own kids. You know, this, you know, my, my, my kids every weekend were shuttling between soccer practice or violin lesson or piano lesson or Girl Scout meetings, you know, so they're, 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 I, I am not sort of saying that I'm outside of this pressure myself, but you, you do see kids, especially kids in the middle class that are being hyper scheduled hyper um, cultivated to try to basically build up the kind of resume that will get them into a good college um, and prepare them for a future that's increasingly looking shakier and shakier. Now, you suggest that uh, expecting parents read baby wise. Why? Well, that's a personal recommendation. And I, I the reason I have, I've had great experience. I mean, I, I've, I've had a lot of, you know, I made a lot of errors as a parent. And I, I, I say that from the first page of the book. And, and that's why I didn't write an advice book. But the one thing that my wife and I did really well was sleep train our kids. Um, and we had to because we're both physicians, and we both had to, had to basically know that we, we could have you know, a chance at night to regain our sleep that we needed to work during the day as physicians. And we also knew we'd have to leave the house at a certain time every morning. Um, and so we needed to make sure our kids were on a pretty predictable sleep schedule. And so Baby Wise at its core is a sleep training book. But the message of Baby Wise is also that in a family, um, you should put the priorities of the parents before the children, which is a very controversial a very controversial take. And that's why baby wise fell out of print for a while. Um, but it's back in print now. And there are other books that, that advocate for sleep training, but don't do so in as much of a sort of didactic way as baby wise that actually says, put your priorities before your kids. And they, instead what they say is 
your kid's priority should be sleeping well and you need sleep training to do it. Um, but I think there's something sort of reassuring. I, I, what I say in the book is that I recommend Babywise as a first read, but I realize no one's going to actually want to do it after they read Babywise because of that sort of you need to put your your priorities above your kids. And then I recommend another book right after that called The Secrets of the Baby Whisperer, which uses the exact same sleep schedule as Babywise, but does it in a much more gentle way where it's basically saying you're helping your child get the sleep they need while you're also taking care of yourself and you're putting the family first not the parents first which is a much more palatable message even though essentially the books are saying the same thing but you know i think the fact that these books are out there and people look for sleep training um, shows that you know there are some things that you can really hold on to as a as a parent that can help you on the flip side there's also like a whole other group of people that says you should never sleep train and you should never let babies cry it out. And, you know, some of these things are basically you have to tailor it to what you as a parent are comfortable with. If you're not comfortable with the idea of, tr- of sleep training and specifically letting a child cry itself back to sleep, then you shouldn't put that stress upon yourself that I have to sleep train. If I don't sleep train, I failed. And more importantly, if my child isn't sleeping through the night, this is a this is a problematic or troubled child. It's more likely than not that kids have sleep problems. So it's statistically, a child is more likely to have difficulty sleeping than to be a good sleeper. But we call difficulty sleeping a problem. We problematize things right now with kids at a rate that we never did before. You talk about Dr. Bryant in your book. What did he teach you? Well, Dr. Brian, uh, this is Dr. James Bryan, who was one of my um, teachers when I was in North Carolina um, during my medicine residency training. Uh, he's a legendary doctor. I mean, he he is a doctor that taught not just me, but thousands of doctors. And when he passed away about a year ago, um, many of us came forward with stories about how he taught us how to be how to basically be a good person while you're being a good doctor, um, mostly by just his, his example. And what, what he did as a doctor was he knew his patients like family and friends. I mean, he would go visit them or see the, go visit them in the hospital or see them in clinic. And the interaction was as if you just saw a, a friend at a, at a, at a get together or a relative at a family gathering there was a real equality and more importantly, a real respect from both sides. And because he built up that respectful relationship and because he really was genuinely interested in who his patients were, he he was interested in what diseases they had and what their medical conditions were and the science behind. He was a brilliant diagnostician and a brilliant physician but he was more importantly just an incredible human being. And because he radiated this genuine interest in his patients, he was able to to get amazing relationships and outcomes um, from his doctoring. And, you know, it goes back a little bit to what we talked about with the patient who is the street sweeper and what I said about getting to know your kids. So much of parenting is relationship, you know, so much. Uh, I, I don't write a lot about teenagers in my book, but you know, people have said, you know, well, what, like, how, 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 like, how could I be sure that when my kids are teenagers, they're not like 
crazy and like, you know, doing things behind my back and, you know, doing dangerous things. And, and I, I don't think you can ever guarantee that. But what I think is your best chance of it not happening are establishing as early as possible the kind of respectful, open, honest, and genuinely caring relationships with your kids that Dr. Brian did with his patients. What is the overall message you would like to leave your readers with? Well, I think the biggest message is parenting today is a unique phenomenon. It's different than it's ever been. The changes that have occurred in the last 50 years in terms of what moms and dads are expected to do and what they are actually doing uh, is is astronomical and it's and it's accelerated at a rate that's never been seen before. So parenting in the 21st century is a unique phenomenon. It has its, it has its unique challenges and there are plenty of resources out there, but still the to me before you're able to harness those resources, you have to do some sort of self-realization. One of the self-realizations that I did was just basically saying, this is actually a harder job than I thought it was. Um, this is being a parent is not what, what I thought it was until I actually became a parent. And so I, what I think I want my readers to take out of the book is just sort of this acknowledgement that we're dealing with a different, a different version of parenting than, than has ever been seen before. And once we get to that point, I think we can start talking about solutions to make it better. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what is the next project you'll be working on? I'm going to hopefully work on another book that explores this intersection between parenting and doctoring, um, doing it a little bit more um, from a practical standpoint where we can actually get some strategies out of how, how to how to get our kids to be more cooperative and how to get better doctor-patient relationships, sort of like the ones I described with Dr. Brian. So I'm going to sort of take that idea and explore it in, in a, in a book-length book, book length version. Well, we'll be looking forward to that book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.